Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezra. Chapter 3 is where I will begin reading today. Book of Ezra, chapter 3, right after the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Before I pray, I'll go ahead and give you the title and then the three points. The title is Three Tactics, the enemies of God's, uh, th- three tactics of the enemies of God's people then and now. Three tactics of the enemies of God's people then and now. And then here are the three points, and they go in the order of the verses of chapter 4, first few verses. Number one, God's enemies seek to, number one, join God's people. Number two, God's enemies seek to intimidate God's people. And number three, God's enemies seek to politically stop God's people. I'll just say those again. They seek to join God's people, intimidate God's people, and politically stop God's people. The text today is Ezra 4, 1 through 6, but I'm going to start by reading last week's text just because I like to keep the flow of what is happening fresh in our minds. So again, this is the word of the Lord. I'll read starting in Ezra 3, verse 8 through 4, verse 6. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, 
And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is much in this text that is obviously relevant for our lives today. I pray that you would give us eyes to see those things. Help us to rightly understand what this text means in its original context, and then help us to understand how to rightly apply this text to our lives in the here and now. God, I pray that you would help us understand better how the enemy would seek to undermine your people today, just as you did, or just as he did back then. And God, I pray that we could trust you and obey you, and that we would have wisdom and discernment to see even when subtle attacks come upon us. So I pray you'd be honored in this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, the people had already rebuilt the altar. They began offering sacrifices and burnt offerings and reestablishing that intimacy with God. And then last Sunday, they began to relay the foundations of the temple of Solomon that had been torn to the ground decades earlier before the exile, as the people have now returned. And at the end of laying that foundation, do you remember last week they, they, they brought out the band and they had a party because of the humble beginnings of this temple foundation being relayed? And they see God's steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness to Israel, His providence working this for good in that moment, and they celebrate. And we talked about last week how we should not fail to celebrate and thank God even for small victories in the Christian life, because sometimes small victories are actually leading to great victories, and so we should never refrain from praising God for those things. I remember as these people are praising God, they got the cymbals, they got the band there, they're making a lot of noise, they're shouting shouts of joy. But remember the older men who had seen Solomon's temple as a child, and they remember the glory of that temple, which was just one of the wonders of the ancient world. Now they've got this relatively small foundation being laid, and it doesn't look anything like the splendor of Solomon's house. And so the older men, these men would have been in their 70s and beyond, were weeping, and they were wailing and calling out in anguish, uh, in distress. And their mixed sound of shouts of joy and shouts of anguish were heard far away. That's the end of chapter 3. And that's a segue to introduce us to the people who are far away, the people of the land around who are listening, who are hearing about what's going on, and they don't like what they are hearing. So my first point, again, these are three tactics of the enemies of God's people, both then and now, and my first point is this. This is verses 1 through 3. God's enemies seek to join God's people. God's enemies seek to join God's people. Now, we're going to spend some extended time on this first point. Let's, let's begin rereading at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. Do you hear my first point? The enemies of God's people are trying to join God's people. Do you hear it? Verse 1, the inspired narrator, which may have been Ezra himself, we don't know that for sure, but the inspired narrator calls this group, the peoples of the land, he calls them from verse 1, what? The adversaries. So there is no doubt in God's mind who these people are. The people of the land who are coming towards the, the, the exile, the returned exiles, they are saying, from the start, God is telling us, these are not people who are up to good. These people have bad desires and bad motives 
but it may not appear that way at first glance. So let's hear their words, because their words don't seem bad. They frankly seem quite helpful. Look at what they say, middle of verse 2. They approach the leaders. These are the enemies of God's people. We're just told that. Verse, middle of verse 2, they say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, it is interesting in the response to them. If you just look in the middle of verse 3, try to find this. These are long verses. When Zerubbabel and the others respond, they call God our God. The enemies call him your God. That's already a little indicator that there's something going on here. The enemies say, Let's, we worship your God, and they say, this is our God. So it's a little bit of a different language, but still, let's just try to humanize this moment. Let's say that we are the returned exiles. We don't have a lot of money, although Cyrus is helping with some of the finances. We don't have a lot of well-built homes yet. We're going to talk about how they're going to start building homes in these coming years. Right now, there's not much in the way of economic success going on. They're just eking by, and they've got a big job to do. And this job is going to be hard, and it's going to take, even when they are really working, we'll find out later, it takes four years to build the temple. That's when they're, when they're working hard. It takes four straight years. And that's having to deal with your own food supply and water and safety and all these other issues you've got to worry about. So these people have a big job in front of them, and they've got, I don't know how many, but it sounds like a good group of people come to them and say, we want to help you. How can you say no to these people? The people of the land show up and knock on the door and say, hey, we want to help. We are here to help. And guess what? We worship your God just like you do. We believe in your God. We believe in Yahweh. We worship Yahweh. And guess what? We've been worshiping Yahweh for about 150 years, ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. How could you possibly say no to these people? This is an incredible offer. But look at verse 3, the response of the leaders. Verse 3, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, thank you so much for your help. We're so glad you're here. No, that's not what they say. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. That doesn't even sound polite. But we alone, but we alone will build to the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, do you feel here an interesting response, isn't it? Because if you're in the crowd, you might be thinking, hey, leaders, let's let them join. This is going to help speed. I mean, we might get the temple done in two years rather than four with all this help. And they might help us financially. They might help get timber where it needs to be. They might help us lay the stones a little bit better. They might help us get the structure going. I mean, this is going to speed the pro- this, this, is, this is economical, right? This, this, is, this is expedient. This is pragmatic. Like, we've got a job to do. It's the right job. We can get help. Okay, there might be some questions about some of what's going on with these people, but man, if they're going to help, why are we to say no? We're going to sound so narrow-minded if we say no. No help from any of you. We're going to do this by ourselves. I mean, what's that going to do to our reputation back in the land? I mean, we've been gone for 70 years. We're coming back. We want to kind of make friends with people. We don't want to look like the outsiders that we are. And we're, we want to be friendly to our neighbors. And they're trying to help us. And we're going to say, absolutely not. Don't pick up a stone to help us. You've got nothing to do with this work. Only the returned exiles are going to help. You guys can leave. That's what we're going to say to these people. I mean, think modern American, like uh, expedient, we're making things efficient, right? Aren't we all about efficiency? 
in America? I mean, we're like, get it done quick, get it done cheap, get it done the best you can. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And so, I mean, if you're thinking in those categories, you're going to disagree with the decision that's made by the leaders. But I think the decision they made here is not just right. I think it's one of the few times in Israel's history that in a moment like this, they made the right decision about a thing like this. You, if you look back at the history, and I'll explain what the problem is in a second here. But if you look back in Israel's history, when it comes to this very kind of temptation, they seem to fail nine times out of ten with the kings of, of, the, of the kingdom, both Judah and of Israel. So, let's get to know these people a little bit better. They give us one little tag here, ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. Turn with me to your left to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And I'm going to spend several minutes walking through this half of the chapter because this is the background to the people of the land who want to help, the ones that are called the enemies or adversaries of God's people. This is the background to these people. Now, without putting us all to sleep, let me just give a technical historical footnote here, okay? The Old Testament is going to mention Esarhaddon in a couple chapters, and this is his dad or his predecessor who's doing the work here. But what we can tell from the biblical account is his predecessor, the king before him, did the same thing that Esarhaddon did and the same thing that his, the one who came after him did. So for about a, over 100 years, this is what Assyria was just doing over and over and over again. And here's a description of the people of the land who want to help. This is what, they were, this is what happened. 2 Kings 17, verse 24, and we are rewinding 150 years back before Ezra, okay? We're 150 years in history behind the book of Ezra, and here's where these people of the land came from who later become known as the Samaritans, okay? So listen to this, 2 Kings 17, 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. He's talking about Yahweh. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now you may be tracking with what's happening, but if you're, if you're not tracking, let me just remind you what's going on here. Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and for the following decades, each Assyrian king, uh, as they go forward, what they keep doing is they keep taking more of the people out of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they displace them and scatter them throughout their kingdom. And what do they do in, to, to replace those people? They take individuals, pagans, from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, other cities of the empire, and they send those pagans into the promised land. This is where the Samaritans come from, right? They're intermarrying between people of Israel and outright pagans. And that's how you get the, what, what, what the, the, the Samaritan group, which was an amalgamation of pagan religion and the worship of Yahweh, okay? All mixed together in something called syncretism, mixing it all together. So, when this starts happening, God sends lions among the people who begin to attack and kill them. These are 
the Asiatic lions who no longer exist in Israel because they've been hunted to death and to extinction around the 19th century. But back in the day, there were these smaller than African lions who lived in that area, and they're mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. David kills lions guarding sheep. Uh, Samson kills a lion with the honey. Remember, the bees are inside the dead lion. There's honey. Uh, th- these smaller lions were were pretty prominent in Israel during the Old Testament time. And God ordains that these lions begin attacking these pagan people who move into his land. God says, you can't just worship pagan idols in my land. I'm going to bring judgment. And so the king of Assyria hears about this, and he actually believes in many gods. So he knows that Yahweh is at least a god. He says, okay, we've angered the God of Israel. Let's send a priest from Israel who knows the the laws of that god so he can instruct them in how to not make that god mad. He can instruct them in how to properly do worship. Now, Do you think that one priest is going to have total success in what he's about to do? No. So let's see what happens. Verse 29, but every nation, these are all the people living in the promised land, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon, and I may not pronounce these words correctly, the men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamoth made Ashimah, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sephirvaim. They also, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. And then look, to this day, that's around the time of Ezra, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall fear, you shall not fear other gods or bow down yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so do they to this day. Now, does that fill in the details of Ezra chapter 4? So let's turn back to Ezra chapter 4. With that section in mind, because those are the people that we're talking about, okay? With that in mind, let's reread part of it. One more time, verse 2 of Ezra 4. Verse 2. These people we just read about, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, do you see what's going on in this particular place? What's happening? They're saying, we worship Yahweh. We sacrificed him. Is that true? Yes. And do they also sacrifice to dozens of other pagan gods? Yes. 
And that's why the leadership does something that Israel rarely ever gets right in the whole Old Testament. They see syncretism, mixing religions, and they know if there's one lesson we've learned in the last 70 years, it's that God hates competitors to his glory. God will not have a rival to his glory, and if you will worship false gods, Israel, for century after century, I will punish you righteously for that. I will kick you out of your land, and I will send you into exile. And they had just come back from being exiled for idolatry. And there's one lesson that people are starting to learn, which is we're not messing with the fact that God is the one God. God is exclusively God. Yahweh is the only God. There is not a pantheon of gods or a group of gods. We are devoting ourselves to one God. And so let's reread their response. Verse 3, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. I said on Friday night that nobody is going to get offended at you saying you love Jesus. They're going to get offended when you say that you exclusively love and devote yourself to Jesus. See, exclusivity, that Jesus is the only way, that kind of thing, that is not just offensive today in our kind of postmodern or post-postmodern society that we're living in. That's not just offensive now. Exclusivity has always been the number one offense of God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, no one cared. If you worship Yahweh and all the other gods, no one would bat an eye. In the Roman world, if you worship the Roman gods and Caesar is God and your God, Jesus, that's fine. But when do things become hated and despised? It's when you say, I cannot go your way because I have to only go God's way. And this could come out in a host of different areas and in a host of different ways. See, the people here, if they would have invited the Samaritans essentially to, to join them, uh, this group to join them, they would have avoided persecution from this group. But because they did things right, things got worse. And I, I want us to hear this. This kind of goes back to Sunday school just an hour ago. Obeying God's commanded will for your life, what God commands us to do, may make circumstances more difficult, not easier. These people now, because they do the right thing, are going to face direct opposition from those same groups for the next 100 years. And all that could have been avoided by one compromise. But if they would have compromised and let the pagans join them, guess what would have happened? When idolaters join the ranks of leadership, they will begin to lead as well. And when the pagans begin to lead as well in your religious institution, what's going to happen to the temple that you're building? It's going to become a shrine to the Babylonian gods and the Assyrian gods and all the others so they know that they cannot compromise at all on this point. So applying this even more directly to us, you know, 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So I want to say this next part carefully. I don't want you to misunderstand. We are always called to be kind. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit and patient and those kinds of things. But we are not always called to be nice. And I want to try to distinguish this for a moment. I, I, I think I'm convinced at this point that our culture's highest virtue is niceness. That person was so nice. 
And they're so nice. And usually I think what we mean is they like to maybe listen to what I have to say and they tend to not be disagreeable about anything I have to say. They just affirm me and they like what I have to say and therefore they're, they're nice. Well, Christians are sometimes called to not be nice. We are called to be kind, to show the fruit of the Spirit. But sometimes what we do will not be seen as nice. And when they respond, you guys cannot help us at all. That was not a nice thing to say. It was righteous. It was good and just. But it wasn't nice in the sense of agreeable. And therefore, it, it allowed these people to become more hostile to the people of God. Here are some arguments that people might make to make compromises. How will we reach these people if we don't let them join us? Israel might have said, our city has no walls. If we anger this people, we'll be in serious physical danger. Let's let them join us. These people may be turned off to God if we, don't simply, if we simply tell them no, especially if they're trying to be so helpful. Their help could speed up the rebuilding process. Rejecting them will only create more problems and hostility. Rejecting them will make us look more intolerant and narrow-minded, and they'll call us those kinds of names. Sure, they don't do everything right, but we all sin and make mistakes. It's pure pride and self-righteousness and even legalism to shut the door on these people's faces. But that may have been the argument some made, but it cannot be the right thing to do or the right way to go. Now, I want to be even more careful with this next part because the comparison is not identical to what we're talking about. But I just I mentioned something current in the news. With the SBC that met about a week or so ago, um, Rick Warren, who's got to be one of the best-known pastors in America, uh, wrote The Purpose Driven Life and uh, Saddleback Church in, uh, I believe, in California, uh, which has been a huge and extremely influential church. He's sold, I don't know how many millions of copies of his book, Purpose Driven Life and Purpose Driven Church and all those kinds of things. Rick Warren, uh, in the last three years, has come out uh, full-blown support of female pastors in, in, in the church. And uh, he's ordained female pastors in his church, Saddleback, and he's part of the SBC. And so this was brought to the SBC, and there was a big vote, a big kind of debate where Al Mohler uh, and, and Rick Warren had a little back and forth uh, in front of the, the whole uh, room, which I recommend you go and, and watch. It was, it was interesting to see. But, but here's the thing. Rick Warren's argument was essentially an argument for being kind and nice, essentially. Let's be nice and let's, 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 let's move the right direction. Let's, let's allow women to be ordained or let's at least allow churches that have female pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. And his argument was essentially a niceness argument. And the response may have sounded to some like an intolerant argument or a narrow-minded argument or a, even a sexist or chauvinistic argument about how could, how could you limit the pastoral office only to, to men who are qualified according to the New Testament stipulations. And yet here's the deal. What Al Mohler made so clear was we're, we're just trying to obey the Bible. 1 Timothy 2.12 is crystal clear on this issue, along with other texts. And we're just trying to be biblical. And here's the deal. I know that the nice argument sounds so persuasive, and it sounds so backwards to take the biblical argument in our cultural moment, but guess what? If we allow compromise into the boat, is it going to have negative long-term effects like you wouldn't believe? That is not only itself sinful to allow those the Bible does not allow to preach to preach. That is not only itself sinful, disobedient to 1 Timothy 2.12. It also opens the door to other compromises that come further down the road. And so even though it may not look nice, it is right, it is loving, it is good to stand with Scripture even when the culture is going to call us names for doing so. Let's move to point number two. These will speed up. Point number two. God's enemies at first, you can see they sought to join the people. Now God's enemies seek a different tactic. They seek to intimidate God's people. And this is verses 4 and 5. 
So because the people were not allowed to join, they turned hostile. Ezra 4.4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We are talking about many decades that are passing here where the people so intimidate God's people that the people become afraid and they stop working. Now, let me show you something here. Remind you of chapter 3, verse 3. Look back at chapter 3, verse 3. This is when the people first get back to the land. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says, they set the altar in its place for, remember this? Fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Same people, right? The same enemies. Fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and therefore, what did they do? They offered burnt offerings. Now, now, now watch this. This is very interesting. Fear comes from outside against the people of God in chapter 3, and what does the fear do? It makes them run to God for security, not from God. So because they're afraid of the people, they go build an altar, and they worship God, and they cry out to God, and they seek God. That's the right thing to do. When we are afraid, we put our hope in Him, right? But then in chapter 4, when the people of the land continue discouraging them and making them afraid, now what happens? They give in to the sinful temptation, and instead of running to God and obeying God, what do they do? They turn from God in disobedience and stop building the temple out of fear. So here's a little lesson for all of us. Fear and anxiety is going to be something all of us in this room struggle with to some degree or another until the day we die and meet the Lord Jesus. But every time we experience fear or anxiety, we can go one of two directions. We can either be like the people in chapter 3 and take our fears and our troubles to the Lord and pour them out before Him and process them before Him and be real and honest like the psalmists who just pour out their petitions before the Lord and seek the Lord and do what Philippians 4 says. Don't be anxious about anything, but through everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Or we can allow our fear and our anxiety to be something that we believe and trust in, and therefore begin to bend towards our fears and to not do the right thing that we think could get us into trouble, which is what the people do here. Here's the sad part. For the next 16 years, 16 years, the temple lies exactly as it's been. No progress is made for the next 16 years until we'll see next week what happens to begin the process again. But the people give in to fear and discouragement. Here, here's a couple things to look at. Let me read verse 4 again. The people of the land discouraged the people and made them afraid, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of these kings. How did the enemies get the upper hand? They were relentless in their threats, in their bribery, and in their discouragement, like the dripping faucet, just continuously nagging at and discouraging and speaking down to and saying names to. And here's the thing. It might be actually easy to stand up for what is right and true in a dramatic stand in a single moment. You know, stand up and, and stand up for what's true in a very dramatic moment. That may be actually easier than dealing with the pushback that comes at work day in, day out, over the course of 16 years. And I think the long battle is harder than the short battle. 
The, the short, dramatic battle can be easy sometimes. It's the long, drawn-out, continuous opposition from a family member or from a friend or from maybe a child or a, a coworker that over time can weaken our resolve and can cause us to be discouraged and to give up the work of the Lord. But let us not give in to that fear. I had stuff in my notes I don't have time to get to. I'll just mention it quickly. Do you remember the story, and this is just a, an aside, remember in Daniel 10, the story where he started praying and fasting, and three weeks after he started praying, an angel showed up to him, and the angel said, from the moment you started praying, I heard and I was coming to you, but I had to fight with the demon, the prince of Persia. Like, what, what's going on there? I want to understand what that meant. I was fighting with the prince of Persia, this demon, and then finally, after three weeks, I made it to you. So when Daniel started praying, an angel went out, and then it took three weeks for the angel to get to Daniel because he was fighting with a demonic presence in spiritual warfare. Okay, I'm not going to explain what all that means. I don't know what all that means. But here, I found this absolutely fascinating. You don't, have, you don't have to turn there, but at the very beginning of that chapter, here's the historical context, which I never knew this until very recently. You know when that moment happened where Daniel was in agony and fasting and praying for three weeks? Listen to this. It was in, this is Daniel 10.1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A word was revealed to Daniel. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself for three full weeks. Daniel was in agony, fasting and praying for three weeks. What was he praying about? We're not told, but it's an educated guess, and almost every commentator suggests this, including Sinclair Ferguson and a whole bunch of people. Daniel knew what was going on back home in Jerusalem. Three years into Cyrus's reign is exactly Ezra chapter 4. It's when the work just stopped. And Daniel hears about it, and he's in agony, he's fasting, he's praying for three weeks. I think he's praying about the, the progress of the work in Jerusalem, having ceased from the pushback from the people of the land. The, the point there of application being, are we as emotionally and spiritually engaged with the health of God's people as we see Daniel in that chapter? All right, let's move to the last point, number three. God's enemies finally seek to politically stop God's people. And there's much more on this next Sunday. The whole rest of this chapter is about this, but this is just the beginning sample. Verse 6, this is their third mode of attack. They started by trying to join God's people, then they tried to discourage God's people, and now they are trying to politically force God's people to stop. Verse 6, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. If you're wondering, Ahasuerus is the same as Xerxes. This is Esther's husband, okay, from the book of Esther. So during his reign, you remember during his reign, they, they were about to wipe out all the Jewish people in a, essentially a genocide, and Esther is used by God to stop that in his providence. But you see here, there's a direct political attack. They write a letter. Well, let me just wrap up here with a few thoughts about the political attack, which we'll talk about more next Sunday, Lord willing. Obviously, political power is a good thing, but it can be easily used badly I'm, I'm not the first to tell you, uh, you, you know this, but if someone cannot beat your argument, especially in our culture today, they will just try to shut you down with raw power. So whether it's big tech today, with just people getting canceled or just shut off, you know, you say something from the Bible and you get kicked off Twitter, you get kicked off, kicked off YouTube or whatever it may be. Today, 
raw power is being exerted, whether it's in the political sphere or through big tech. It's just, if we can't beat your argument, we don't want to hear it anymore. We're just going to shut you down. We're going to turn you off. And so now the enemies first, we're going to join their ranks and steer the ship into the ditch. That didn't work. Now they're intimidating the people. That's working for a while. But ultimately, they want to use raw political force and power to just shut them down and shut them off by, by force. And so today, as as there is increasing hostility, we need to be aware that there will be times, and some of us have probably experienced this in different degrees, where there will be just threats like, you will get fired, or you will get a, a cut in pay, or you will get demoted, or you will get just canceled or shut off, or we, we're not going to let you be a part of this if you continue to hold to biblical convictions. And the people of God will learn a lesson next week that even if that is coming against us, we still have to stand true to what God has placed before us. And you see in the work of Christ, I want to end just on a word of the gospel here. You see through the work of Christ that all these different things are tried against Jesus. I mean, he has a betrayer in his own midst, right? Judas is there amongst his 12. Jesus is intimidated, or they attempt to intimidate Jesus by threats and things like that, but Jesus is in no way intimidated. First Peter says he continued entrusting his soul to God who judges justly and continued in obedience. And finally, when raw political power was the only thing left for the Israelites to do, the, the leaders in Israel to do, they, they used Roman power to shut Jesus out. We're going to have him crucified so that we can maintain our little power here in Jerusalem. And Jesus willingly goes through all that persecution like a lamb to the slaughter so that he could atone for our sins and make a way for us to come to know God if we will repent and trust in him. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I, I do ask for wisdom. If enemies try to join the people of God in any sort of way, God, help us to uh, see that. Any way they try to seek influence over us or in our lives personally, that we would be discerning. What may look good on the outside may not be what it appears at first as it was in this chapter. We will help you, they said. Secondly, Lord, when intimidation comes, threats bribery, these kinds of things. God, I pray we would not give in or cave in to our convictions. And finally, if there is raw use of power or force against us, God, I pray we would stand true to what is true. Because of what Christ has done, we know that you are faithful even in the midst of that kind of persecution. And I pray that we, like Christ, would continue entrusting our souls to him who judges justly and that we would be able to bear it in a way that would be honoring to you. And that like the apostles experienced, when they were beaten by the council and told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, they left the council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.